Thanks for listening to the podcast of Hope Church in East Hampton, Connecticut. Our mission is to love God, love people, and serve the world. To find out more about Hope Church, be sure to check out our website at cthope.com. I, I wasn't here last week and I missed you guys. I was on a kind of last minute road trip down south and so I actually am really thankful for our online message because I was able to listen to the service somewhere in Virginia last week on the way home so that was kind of fun for me. Um, so it's good to see you guys. I am glad you're here. If you don't know me, my name is Carrie. I'm one of the teachers here at Hope Church and I would love to connect with you later if we haven't met already. And you are here for a good time because we're in the middle of a series on the book of James. And Tom kicked us off last week. It's this series called, um, I think I'm going to say it right, Things You Need to Know But Don't Want to Hear. And that might sound like a mouthful, but I think it's really, um, it's actually a really good title. It's something that um, there's always something that we need to know and don't necessarily want to hear. And James, as we're finding out, is someone who's going to give us the hard truth. He's going to be blunt. And uh, Tom taught me something last week. I did not know that James was originally probably the name Jacob, so that was, that was new to me. But, um, but yes, Tom shared last week, and I would encourage you to go back and listen if you have not, and he shared that one of the truths that we don't want to know but we need to hear is that suffering can actually be good for you. And he didn't want to gloss over your pain. He didn't want to gloss over the hurts that we're carrying. But he wanted to remind us what James says, that that God sometimes uses suffering to grow something in us, to mature us in our faith, to build an endurance. Um, And Tom even shared something this week on social media about how sometimes in our suffering, we hear God so loudly in our lives. And maybe you can relate to that. Um, And I'm not going to give away just yet the hard thing that we need to know today, Um, But we are going to be talking a little bit about prejudice, maybe some pride, and favoritism. And uh, Barbie might be in there somewhere, too. Just you can wait for that. Um, We're pink for a reason. Um, So speaking of favoritism, I found out this week that apparently I have a favorite child. And if you're a parent, you know, like, your kids are going to always accuse you of having a favorite, right? Like, they're like, well, you get this one first, you do this for so-and-so, and and why do you never buy me snacks? And I'm like, yeah, because I, you know, whatever. Um, I'm not going to defend myself to you here. But, um, although ironically, my youngest, the youngest never accuses me of playing favorites, and that's probably because the youngest knows they are the favorite, right? That's just, they assume. In fact, who's a middle child? Are you a middle child? I'm a middle child, so I feel you. I was watching a video recently on like Instagram, and it showed all these adult children in their birth order, and so um, whenever it cut to the middle child, they'd be like, I'm the middle child, I psh, and it would just cut out, because nobody listens to the middle child. So if you feel that way, I feel you. But where was I? I have a favorite child, right. So, um, so this week I was reminded, I went on this trip and I was four days away from my family and I don't usually do this. So I came home and I thought my kids are all gonna you know, run to the door to greet me. They just love me so much. And I opened the door and who comes up to me? The dog, the dog yes. <laughs> the dog comes up to me. And so the dog is like, I'm, I'm sitting there like petting the dog and she's like, you're the best thing ever. And then my ninth grader walks in and, and is like, really mom? Really, you're going to hug the dog before you hug your children? And then Charlie accused me of having a favorite child, which is the dog. And I couldn't argue with 
Charlie because, like, first of all, like the dog, okay, she might pee on the floor, but she's never once accused me of making her late for school when she slept through her own alarm, right? And never once has the dog complained about my cooking. No, like, like if any of my children would sit there and beg for my meatloaf the, the way that the dog begs for my food, right? I would just be like, great, you're the favorite, but no. But James, we're going to find out, is telling us we should not have favorites, even if it's the dog. So we'll, we'll jump in there. I I've, I've, will hopefully learn my lesson. Um, if you would like to follow along, we're going to be reading mostly in James 2 today. Um, and you can follow along on the Bible app. If you're like me, I like to have a physical book in my hand. So um, feel free to, to use that. And if you are here today and you don't have a Bible, I don't care if you're new to church or if you've been here five years, we have Bibles over at Guest Central. We would love for you to take one if you don't have one. Um, we want that to be something that's accessible to everyone. Um, so we'll jump right in today to James 2, 1 through 9, and we'll see what he has to say about favoritism. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. There it is, pretty blunt. And then he gives an example. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here, here's a good seat for you. And if you say to the poor man, will you stand there or, or you sit on the floor by my feet? Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. We're going to see this phrase over and over again. James keeps calling, calling out people in this letter. Brothers and sisters. Family. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are not they the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you do right. You're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Um, so there's a lot to unpack here, right? We, we've got like um, some buzzwords. We've got favoritism and discrimination. And, um, and even James is saying that we're, we become, you know, sinners with evil thoughts, uh, judges with evil thoughts. Sorry, let's just extricate that. Um, I want to first look at the context of what James was, who he was writing to in his context. So um, I found out this week that at the time James was writing this letter, the church was... Um, Christians were pretty much considered um, less than others. They were, they were, uh, people were prejudiced against them. And so this was a time where there was a lot of economic trouble in general, but Christians would have felt the brunt of that economic um, issue more than others probably. Uh, like the commentary I found was saying that Christians kind of might be last one hired, first one fired kind of situation. Um, so they were feeling it. And in some ways, because they were facing this kind of discrimination in the world, um, James may have been saying, hey, listen, maybe you feel like, not even just for yourselves, but for the church, maybe you're trying to kind of you know, kiss up to the people that are wealthy and influential around you because you're trying to gain some standing and you're trying to gain some resources. Um, and maybe they had kind of fallen into the trap of, of falling into the world's version of what is successful and what, what gives you favor and so James is speaking to that. Um, and James is very clear here that uh, even though he only alludes to it in verse 5, 
James wants the people he's speaking to to understand that there is a different kingdom than the world that they're supposed to live in, that they're supposed to honor. Um, And so he says that the poor that are being discriminated against are poor in the eyes of the world. In the eyes of the world. In other words, if you are looking through the world's eyes, yes, you're going you're to make distinctions between people. You're going to see rich and poor. You're going to see a lot of different distinctions, but that's not the way that God wants you to see other people. And so you need to put on glasses of the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of God, and then you'll see clearly who's rich and poor. Put on the glasses of Jesus, and then you will not make distinctions among people so quickly. And you may be asking, okay, what is this kingdom you're talking about, Carrie? Like, Jesus would frequently talk about um, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. He said, that's why I'm here. I have come um, to preach the good news and to, to share that the kingdom of God has come near. And so I believe this kingdom is something that, you know, we may refer to it as heaven, as some place that we get to go to eventually to be with God. But I believe God made it very clear that the kingdom is not just a someday place, it is for right now. And so Jesus said, we can pray that his kingdom would come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so he invites us as his followers to live out, um, to live as citizens of a different kingdom. We don't live as citizens of this world, but as citizens of heaven. And we bring that, that kingdom right here, right now. And in this kingdom, the rules are entirely flipped, and it's a little bit jarring. Okay, so how many of you have seen the Barbie movie? A few of you. I, I was a little late. I just now saw it. I did not get to see it in theaters. Um, but for those who did see it, um, I won't give everything away. But essentially, there's Barbie world, and there's, there's the reality. There's real world. In fact, you can buy a shirt that shows um, we have Barbie land, and we have the real world. And they're very different. Okay, and Barbie land, as you might imagine, is, is very pink. It is very, um, very plastic, and uh, pretty much women dominate here. The food is fake. I don't know why the food is fake. That seemed a little, a little, I don't know. Um, it's neither here nor there. Um, and so, yes, like the world essentially revolves around the Barbies, and the Kins are kind of just in the background, kind of as an, just, just there, just an accessory. Um, but Ken and Barbie at some point have to go from Barbie land into the real world. And when they get there, Barbie is shocked to discover not only that, that girls actually don't like Barbies as much as she thought they did, um, but she doesn't feel that, that she's respected as much here. And Ken is actually startled to discover like patriarchy and, uh, and horses. He seems very, like, very focused on the horses. I don't really, maybe if you've seen it, um, all that to say. When Barbie and Ken get to this real world, they are confronted with a reality and values that are far different than what they're used to, and clothing that is far different than what they're used to. Um, And this would be true if if anyone goes to even a different country, right? The customs, the clothes, the food that you would eat, and the values are going to be very different, and you would have to reorient yourself to this different kind of reality. And so James, I think, is almost saying like, okay, you are used to this world, this world mindset, this world reality, but I'm telling you the kingdom of God is far different and everything is flipped on its head. And so the things that make sense to you in the world are not the things that make sense in the kingdom. And this is why James is telling us, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to actually be rich in faith and to inherit this kingdom? The people that we have looked down on as low or less than or not enough in this world are precisely the people that God is saying, they may be closer to my kingdom than than you think they are. It's a reversal from what we would expect. In fact, in chapter 1, 9 through 10, James says, Let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up. 
and the rich in being brought low, because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. And first of all, I think this verse is saying, um, many of you may have heard Irena speak a couple weeks ago from um, the team from Croatia, and she said, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And I think part of this verse is saying, listen, the, if you're wealthy, if you're rich and you're trusting in riches, that becomes your God, that becomes your idol, and you're not trusting in God, and so you become farther from the kingdom. And James is saying, the wealth is going to pass away. It's not going to last and I also believe that, I don't think James is saying that there should be, like the rich should be brought down here and then the poor should be brought up here. But he's saying, hey, if you are poor in the eyes of the world, God is going to elevate you. God wants to elevate you to how he sees you. And if you're rich and you feel like you're way up here in the status of the world, God might need to humble you a little bit so you see that you are on equal footing with all your brothers and sisters in the eyes of Christ. Do we see through a worldly lens or a kingdom lens? And I love that actually um, the commentary I read this this week by uh, Peter Davids, he says that even though James does not directly quote Jesus, in the early church, much of the teachings of Jesus would have been passed down orally and people would have memorized it. So, so much of what James is saying, people would have understood this to be just saturated with the teachings of Jesus. And so even here in James 2, we see references to the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5. And if you go back this week and look at that, you see Jesus would say, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness, for, um, when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are the meek, because yours is the kingdom, right? God, Jesus affirms what, what James is saying here. So the worldly lens might say, okay, submit to or kiss up to the rich and powerful so that you can become rich and powerful. But the kingdom says, submit to God, who is all-powerful and owns everything, and he will lift you up. The worldly lens says, the wealthy exemplify abundant life, and the kingdom lens says, those who are poor actually point the way to the abundant life in the kingdom of God. And it's not just the kingdom lens we must use, but we must be sure that we are looking through the heart of God at others. We must be sure that we are looking through the heart of God at others. In fact, while the NIV uh, translates James 2.1 as believers must not show favoritism, the NASB actually translates this as a question. It says, my brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ if you're showing favoritism? And that sounds really blunt and really harsh. But what James is saying here is how can you live out favoritism when that is antithetical to who God is and his heart? How can you say you believe in God when you're living out what is contrary to who he is? Because what is God's character? Does he show favorites? We might be tempted to believe that he does, but Galatians 3.28 reminds us there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We are one in Christ Jesus. And we might be tempted to say, oh, people with influence or, or um, you know, celebrity status, maybe those people are more influential. But if you remember, we shared from this, this book of Galatians recently, and Paul went to who he called the, kind of the super apostles, Peter, James, and John. And people might have assumed that they were more influential and that they had walked with Jesus, so they were closer to him and had more standing. But Paul reminds us, no. Who they were does not matter. God does not show favoritism. He has chosen the weak things and the lowly things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. God in in Acts 15.9 says, God does not discriminate on who gets the gift of his spirit or whose hearts are cleansed by faith. We are all one in Christ. 
And if you would doubt that God does not discriminate, James actually seems to make it very clear, even later in this passage, um, in the, he uses um, two different people to make a point about faith and works going hand in hand together. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, but he talks about Abraham and this woman Rahab being examples of faith and works going hand in hand. And many of you know Abraham, right? He's the father of the father of uh, the faith, essentially, like the first person that, that Jesus, uh, that God called out and, and formed his people through Abraham and said, I'm going to bless my people through you. But you may not know as much about Rahab. She actually lived in the land of Jericho and Joshua was the one who marched with the army around Jericho and the walls came down and God delivered Jericho into the Israelite hands. But Rahab was actually in there and, and before the battle, these spies from um, the Israelite spies went into Jericho and Rahab at risk to her own life hid these spies um, and so James is making the point. She, she risked her life. She put faith and action together. And she ultimately then became a part of the lineage of David and, and of Jesus himself. And I love that she represents the minority, right? She represents, first of all, she wasn't an Israelite. She was grafted in. Um, she had, would have had lower status. Um, even as a female, compared to Abraham in that culture especially, she would have had less status um, and then third, she's, re she's referenced as a harlot or someone who would have been seen as maybe having low moral standing. And yet James, makes it, James does not seem to care about that when he includes her as a prime example of faith and action. And so again, I think, I think James is making an intentional point here that we cannot cast aside or assume that certain people have lower standing or higher standing in the kingdom. God views us far differently than the world would. And when we make distinctions, we're not only going against God's character, but we become poor reflectors of God's character. In other words, when we start making distinctions and tr treating people differently based on who they are or their standing, people begin to think that that's how God would see them or treat them, right? Because, because we represent God to other people. God says we're his witnesses, his ambassadors. I've said this before, but we're like his moon. He's the sun and he shines and we're meant to reflect him back to a world that's dark. But when we distort the image of God, when we, when we judge others, when we discriminate, we become broken reflectors of him. And James goes on to say we become judges with evil thoughts. In this context, such judgment or distinction, um, again, led to preferential treatment. And so our actions speak very clearly about the kingdom we're living and investing in. But here's the heart issue I want to point out today. Why is it so bad to make, to make distinctions? Why does that even matter? I think that there's a root. I think there's a root of our discrimination that maybe we don't always realize. Um, when we're living in the world and its values, the, the truth is that we're focused primarily on ourselves um, and what we can get from others. And I found this interesting as I was reading this week. Um, this jumped out at me. Uh, there's a contrast in verse 8 and 9. And it's almost like if you're, if you're telling your kids, like, here's how not to do something, and here's how to do something, right? There's this, you, you kind of do a contrast. And so James says in verse 8, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing what's right, okay? This is the model of what you want to do. But he says, but if you show favoritism, you sin. Now, it seems like an interesting contrast because it seems like what James is saying is that favoritism is actually the opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself. And why is that? Well, I think it's because when we show favoritism, often it's about more about loving ourselves and getting something from other people instead of loving others the way God wants us to. And this is the hard truth that you need to know but you don't want to hear, that I need to know and I don't want to hear. 
is that you love your neighbor more, or sorry, you love yourself more than you love your neighbor. You love yourself more than you love others. You and I tend to be focused on looking out for number one. And James is showing that favoritism is often, we might think it's about showing preferential treatment to others. Oh, let me do this nice thing for you. But often it's really about what we can get for ourselves. It becomes transactional. And transactional is always something of the world. I have to do something, and if I give you honor, if I give you respect, if I, if I kiss up to the right people, then I get influence, I get um, maybe wealth, or I get favor in the eyes of other people. In fact, I think this goes even deeper. There's some of us who might say that we're people pleasers. I, I call myself a recovering people pleaser. But the truth is that often I'm actually not so much worried about pleasing you, but I, I want to feel good about myself, right? If I can make you happy, then I feel good about myself. Or if I can make other people, if I feel like I'm doing what other people need me to do, then sometimes it makes us feel like um, that we are purposeful, that we get validation, that we get respect. And it's a slippery, it's kind of that fine line, right? But if we're honest, I think J James would call us out on acting in service of our own self-interest at the expense of others or even using people without realizing it, using people uh, to, to, to make ourselves feel better or, or look better. And I know that maybe in this uh, series, you're hoping that we kind of come down hard on certain things like, um, like moral issues or convictions. And I, I know that God says we are to look very different than the world around us. But I think sometimes we can uh, forget that God does not call us to fight for just Christian culture. He, he calls us to fight for kingdom culture. And James is writing a letter to the church, and clearly this church has taken on some habits of the world around them. And if we're not careful, we can forget that the king, that church culture can become so influenced or entangled in the world culture that, um, that it doesn't reflect God's heart. And sometimes church culture, I think James would say, can turn into this holy country club where the focus is prestige and dress codes and entertaining ourselves. And a country club is, is exclusive, Right? It kind of represents the world's version of success. And we can bring that into the church and we can use certain moral code words and make people feel like it's not okay for them to be here. And I think if James were in our church today, he would not have to worry about, like, no one's going to walk in this door as a poor person and, ha you know, like, we're not going to have a greeter be like, <laughs> here, sit on the floor at my feet, you scum. Like, hopefully that's not your experience when you walk in these, in these doors, Right? But I do think that as a church, or the church at large, or maybe especially in America, um, we maybe have started to look at morality as currency. And we might say, oh, okay, like I'm going to treat people differently based on you know, how I perceive their, um, their rightness before God. And maybe we've started to, um, even, even not even just how we respond to people, but in how we allow ourselves to be associating with other people. And we might think, oh, I'm afraid to be seen with this person or in this place or this thing, because what if people assume that I vote this way or that I, um, that I endorse this sin or that I'm soft in this area? And I think we can, without realizing it, we can start to, um, to judge others and let it impact the way that we respond to them. And we say, you can come in, you can, you can be here, but just change really quickly, okay? Because, you know, we just need you to clean that up. And that is not our heart. That is not God's heart. I believe God wants us to say, we, we need to be honoring and open to everyone. We need to remember that Christ loves us all and that he sees us all equally in his eyes. Who are the Rahabs of our day? Are there people we might shut out of the church or let in, but just barely? Do we cater to the wealthy, influential, or the ones that have the most moral or influential currency? Or do we see that God has given an incredible gift of faith 
to those we may view as inconsequential. Our faith needs to to lead us to invest in the world around us and invest in people around us, even when it maybe makes us feel uncomfortable or makes us look bad to someone else. James says, uh, you might even ask yourself, well, well, why should we bother? Should we just be sharing our faith? Do we really need to um, take care of people and invest in uh, those who are poor or um, who maybe not have as much? And I would say James says, if we truly love God, if we truly want to live out this faith that we have, it has to go with, it it will absolutely impact the way we are treating other people. And we need to care not just for their spiritual needs, but also for their physical needs. Because I really believe that anytime we make an investment in this kingdom here and now, whether it's giving to someone in need or loving someone or being sacrificial, it is like planting a seed that not only bears fruit in this world, but also bears fruit in eternity. And that's a powerful thing to think about. God says you have to live out your faith in real time, here and now. And for James, faith and works, loving other people well, go hand in hand. They are inextricably connected. Here's how James puts it. James 2, 14 through 18 says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters? There it is again, that that, uh, family statement. If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. Some translations would say is barren. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. James is saying that when we have faith, when we believe in God, when we follow him, it will inevitably lead us to love those around us in tangible ways. And you might be sitting here thinking, okay, we we could get really legalistic really fast if we're not careful with this, right? And we could start thinking that James is saying, you have to prove your Christianity or prove your love for God by doing all the right things. And I do not believe that is what he is saying. In fact, Paul clearly and, and elsewhere would say, it is not by works that you're saved. It is a gift of God. It is faith, right? So is James contradicting Paul here? I don't think so. Because even when we talked about Galatians and how, how uh, Paul went to, and said, here's the gospel I'm preaching, and he asked Peter and James and John, is this, is this the gospel that, that you would have me preach? Is this, is this what you're in line with what you're preaching as well? And the apostle said to him, yes, absolutely. The only thing we want to make sure you keep doing is that you're giving to the poor. And Paul said, absolutely, that's already what, I, what I've been doing and what I encourage people to do. Because for Paul, just as for James, Loving the poor, loving those with needs around us is not antithetical to the gospel. It is part and parcel of the gospel. It is um, absolutely at the core of what the gospel is. I like how Peter H. David puts it. Faith informs and motivates action, and action matures faith. Faith informs and motivates action, and then action matures faith so, faith. so it's like this cycle. So when we believe in God and we have faith, it propels us to act. And as we act in obedience to God and we love those around us, that actually stretches us and grows our capacity for faith. And then it keeps going and it keeps going and matures us. Um, 1 Thessalonians 1.3, written by Paul, um, c- confirms this. He says, I thank you for the work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. 
So Paul would agree that faith produces work and love prompts um, labor and hope inspires endurance. These things go together. Paul is showing us that, um, that love animates, animates us in such a way that our faith is, is rich with, with action. I will say that Paul shows us the opposite side of this. He says, it, we don't want to become people who just do, 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 because that's what we're supposed to do. We need to make sure that we're rooted in love. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 3 through 7, which is a familiar passage to many of you. If I give all I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but don't have love, I am nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It isn't proud. It isn't self-seeking. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. It doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And so Paul reminds us that this kingdom love is not self-centered, but others-centered. It's not about what we can get from others, but what we can give for others and to others. But as we close out the message today, I just want to, I want to share, I think, why faith and love are so important and go hand in hand, and even with our action. Um, I want to tell you a story that I recently read for a seminary class, uh, because if you didn't know, you're actually, I'm, I'm like taking you on the seminary journey with me. It's kind of fun for me. So um, you, get to, you get to hear some of my textbooks. But there's a book I'm reading right now called The Helper's Journey by Lar, uh, Dale G. Larson. And he shares a story in this book about a woman named Mrs. March. And Mrs. March was depressed, and she was isolating herself, and she was really um, in a really bad mental state. And she had a five-month-old baby named Mary. And this baby showed signs of neglect and of not being cared for. And when professionals would observe Mrs. March with the baby, they would notice that even when the baby cried and was desperate for attention, Mrs. March just seemed to like not hear the cries and not seem to be able to respond to her daughter's needs. And you might look at this person and think, oh my gosh, how selfish could she be, right? But it turns out as, as professionals began working with Mrs. March, they discovered that she as a child had felt abandoned and unloved and unseen. She had this, this horrible scarring from her childhood. And as Mrs. March worked with these professionals, as she began to, to be open about her own hurt and her pain, as she began to, to see herself as worthy of love and as she began to receive love, suddenly they found that she started to respond to her baby's crying. And she began to be more responsive to this little baby that needed her. And as she received love for herself, she began to actually be able to pour that back out to her daughter. So much so that within four months, the book says, Mary became a healthy, more responsive, often joyful baby. Why am I sharing this story with you? Because I believe that faith starts with love, with a feeling of being deeply loved and seen by God. And maybe this sounds backwards because you might be saying, Carrie, I thought the whole point of this message is that we aren't supposed to love ourselves so much. Yep, hear me out. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, one of the first sins, one of the first lies that they believed, the, the serpent got um, Eve to believe not only that she should disobey God's command, but he got her to doubt that God was for her. He got her to doubt that God truly loved her enough. He got her, he got her to believe that God was holding out on her. Oh, did God really say you shouldn't eat this, this fruit? Because God knows if you eat it, oh, actually, something good's going to happen to you. And God knows that, and he doesn't want that for you. And so Eve started to believe that God was holding out, that maybe he didn't love her as much as 
she thought. And what happens if you don't believe that God loves you, if you don't believe that you are truly seen and valued and held, then you have to start trying to find that love everywhere you go. You have to be responsible for taking care of yourself because you have to believe that no one else is going to do that for you. And it becomes this mad dash where we're reaching and we're grasping and we're trying to find love everywhere. And we can't hear the screams of those around us and the cries of love from other people because we are so desperately in need of that love for ourselves. And maybe for some of you in here today, you're like, I've been trying so hard to love other people and I've been trying so hard to do what God wants me to do and I just can't seem to do it. And maybe today God's saying, you need to stop trying so hard and please let me love you because I love you so radically. I love you farther than um, you could possibly imagine. The depths of the riches of my love for you, you may never fully grasp. I sent my son to die for you, not because I had to, not out of obligation, but because I love you, child, and I want to be with you. Stop trying so hard and let yourself be loved because God loved us first, plain and simple. You are seen, you are valued, you are chosen. We sang that song, which was so perfect today, and I know God orchestrated it. God recklessly loves us in a way that we can't possibly understand. You are not left on the floor. You are not given a seat over, over there. Um, you are included. You're not outside the flock. You are, God doesn't look at your gender or your ethnicity or your, your race or your economic status and make any distinction about you. He says, you are loved, period, and I long to hold you in my love. And as you rest in that love, as we rest in God's love for us, I think what happens is that just like this woman, Mrs. March, we become animated by that love. When we feel seen and loved and worth being with, we begin to see and love and value others the way Christ loved us. The love animates us so we are aware of and responsive to the cries of a broken world around us. And this love will not merely be with words, but will, with action, as James says. We don't, when we've been loved by God, when we've been cared for by God, we don't look at someone else who's in need and say, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I hope, you, I hope you're warm. I hope you have enough food. No, we go and give them food. We go and give them what they need because we've been loved. 1 John 4.19 says that. We love because God first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. He has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And this flies in the face of that hard truth, right? That we love ourselves more than we love others. God says, let me love you so completely and so fully that that love overflows naturally to those around you. So where do we go from here? Well, for one, I would just say, again, if you are someone who's sitting in here and you have never experienced that radical love of God, maybe you're afraid to come to God because you think you can't possibly be seen or loved. My prayer for you today is that you would just like the wall, let the walls fall down because God's going to break down lies. As the song said, he's, he's going to break down every lie. He's going to kick down every wall. He's going to fight for you because he loves you so much. And my prayer is that you would experience that love today in a radical and new way. And for others of us, if you've been following God for a while, sometimes I think we start to forget God's love. I think we start to take it for granted. I think we almost can start to take advantage of it. Or maybe even we start to believe that we've earned that love. And to you, God wants to say, hey, listen, I love you so much. And I want you to remember that the person sitting next to you right now, the person in the grocery store that you're going to meet later after you leave these, wall, these doors, 
I love that person just as much as I love you. And may you be a reflection, may you be a witness and an ambassador to that person of my glorious love for others. You don't need to hoard God's love. You don't need to add the world's validation to God's love. Favoritism has no place here. There's no need to discriminate because I've called you equally as my children. You want to take a hard stand against the world's values? You want to bring kingdom culture to earth? Go and love people offensively as I have loved you. Let's pray. God, um, I know my heart and you know my heart and our hearts better than, than we know ourselves. And you know how quickly we can default to this lie that we need to be looking out for ourselves and that selfishness that we are so prone to And I'm praying, God, that today you would open our eyes again afresh to the vast, incredible love that you have for us. God, that we would be reminded of your sacrifice and your heart and the way that you pour out over and over and over again for us. And I pray, God, that as we are so full and saturated with your love, that you would lead us in that love to those around us who desperately are crying out for you. God, may we be people that are not... um, not focused on the, I'm in the world and looking through the eyes of the world, but may you give us eyes to see through your heart the way you see others. We love you, God, and thank you for your love. Amen.